This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For two hours, a celebration of Memorial Day. From the American Revolutionary War straight through Afghanistan and Iraq, 1.354 million dead in combat and non-combat-related fatalities. And we're going to be moving through love letters, correspondence, great historians, some of the great work of PBS, and in a moment we'll be joined by Robert Agostinelli, who has done something just remarkable for the city of Washington, D.C. First, though, we wanted to play one clip from Saving Private Ryan, and it's the most compelling clip in a remarkable movie, and it is a letter being read towards the end of that movie that I think brought almost anyone who'd seen the movie to tears, and let's take a listen to that, and then we'll be joined by our guest. I have a letter here written a long time ago to a Mrs. Bixby in Boston. Bear with me. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five. Sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. Pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost. The solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. And now joining us, Robert Agostinelli, a board member of the American Veterans Center which hosts the parade, and he's the co-chairman of the Friends of the National Memorial Day Parade, which financially sponsors it, also a co-founder of the Roan Group. And, Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Good to hear your voice again. Hey, same here, Robert. And tell us about the day's events and uh, what it means to you. I mean, you, you grew up in Rochester, and I can only assume that this was a day that was meaningfully, meaningful to you, even as a young man. Well, that's right. I mean, look... This is a day that we celebrate, uh, really, those who made the ultimate sacrifice. And, uh, you know, my story started, you know, I'm an American immigrant, Italian-American immigrant, grew up in Rochester, New York, middle-class life like most of America. And my father was first generation and, you know, for one and a half, you know, half to one generation, if you count the trip on the boat. And uh, my grandfather, who was in the Italian military, insisted that everybody, A, speak English, and B, do their military service, and all of my uncles did so. And my father uh, left, having married my mother at Fort Dix. Engaged, his platoon engaged in battle with the Chinese as they came literally over the hill. And uh, as you know, the Chinese would take out the platoon leader, and the sniper would be used. And my father was shot in the head through the through the jaw. Took out all of his good-looking teeth. Took him a long time to rehabilitate, but that plus everything else I went through as a young kid taught me 
the power of service taught me the, the, the power of our values and taught me about the line, the thin line between tyranny and freedom. And uh, for me, this is what this day is about. And therefore, it's just a natural duty, as far as I'm concerned, to participate, support it, do whatever I can for those who have stood before us. And uh, that's why I do it. Well, you know, and I do this show and I've always done it, even with uh, the company I worked with at Salem. Everybody else was off. My mom's brother got killed uh, just days after D-Day. And uh, she always told me about the screaming mothers on the street because six boys were killed on that day in one little town. And the the grief was there, and that was it for me. And from then on, that's what we had to do. You know, you you love to cite a great John F. Kennedy quote. Uh, can you share that with us, Robert? Is that the one? Uh, the, the, there are several, but are you talking about the one that he did on uh, on his inauguration? Yeah, the one about a nation revealing itself by not only the men it produces, but as you cite here, and he did often, the men it honors. Um, talk about that. Well, I, look, the... I'm very troubled about where our nation is today because we've drifted. I mean, John F. Kennedy was a Democrat, despite the fact that his father said, no son of mine will ever be a, uh, a liberal. Uh, but John F. Kennedy understood both personally, PT-109, the, the, the value of service, as did his brother Joe, who died, uh, air pilot, as you know. I think it was 43, if I recall. And uh, as the 35th president of the United States, uh, this young man basically stood up for uh, and made the country aroused the country to be aware of what it was to, to support and defend freedom. And the metal of a country, the backbone, the fiber of a country, particularly the United States of America, is measured in large measure by how it treats those men in service. I don't know if you noted, but uh, I, I noted quite this morning as I was getting ready for the parade, a series of disturbing reports about vandals who had vandalized a series of military uh, cemeteries around the country. I think there were three or four. And these are, these are signals that there's trouble in, in our midst. Frankly, it's called evil. But yeah. I think that the Kennedy quote really goes to the core. It goes right to the fiber of each and every one of us as citizens, man, woman, and child. We have to back, defend, support these people, whether it's at the VA, whether it's in rehabilitation, of which you know I've been involved in, um, and whether or not it's uh, you know making sure they've got the means to produce victory. Second thing is, John F. Kennedy understood victory as did many other uh, critical presidents in our, in our time, starting with Washington and Lincoln, and, and Ronald Reagan, of course. And we need to remember and be reminded of what war is about. We don't go to war to conquer. We don't go to war to uh, in, in, uh, inhabit another land, except for the cemeteries that we, that we have around, dotted around the globe. We go to destroy the enemy that is trying to destroy us. Hold that thought, Robert. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the parade And what's happening to parades around this country? Uh, It's now a a commercial event, Memorial Day. And look, I don't mind fun. I don't mind hot dogs and hamburgers. But my goodness, this time must be spent honoring the fallen and the fallen heroes of this great country. More with Robert Agostinelli. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, a special Memorial Day show.
This is Our American Stories, and for the two hours, Memorial Day, we do so much here. We talk about sports, free enterprise, you name it. We hit it here. We did an hour on Barbara Streisand and Bob Dylan uh, last week, and the intellectual property rights and all of the things that allow so much great music and art to flourish in this country. But without the fighting men, without the warriors, my goodness, Barbara Streisand and Bob Dylan don't write their music and go to countries where there is totalitarianism and take a look at their art and take a look at the productivity of their artists and their creatives. And thus, we are honoring those folks so that we can enjoy the lives that we live now today. And joining us is Robert Agostinelli. And, and, and Robert, we were just talking before the break about the dearth of parades. And Washington, D.C. itself hadn't had a parade in quite some time. Talk about what you did to bring the parade back to our nation's capital. Well, you know, under Clinton, they had, they had uh, slowly but quietly put the parade away. And um, the credit for bringing the parade back really, really resides in the first instance with James Roberts, who runs the Veterans Center. I mean, he he willed it. I would almost literally say he willed it back into existence. Uh, the man's got an incredible um, energy level. And, you know, brick by brick, he put it back together. And, you know, I came in after it had been established, but it was weak. It was weak when I came in. Gary Sinise, of course, you know well, was there before me. And uh, Joe Mantegna, they, they were both there today. Uh, they they were there early and helped bolster it up. But I think I've been involved now, I think, for the fourth year. And, uh, you know, what we did slowly but surely was go out and raise money and, and, and raise the awareness of, of the event. Uh, to bring it back to where it is today. I mean, incredibly, in the middle of Washington, D.C., where there's so many buildings that ought to be knocked down because they have no utility whatsoever for the Republic, here we are having to pay fees uh, and and expenses to the city for the parade when we're honoring our heroes. I mean, the whole thing is crazy. But thankfully, particularly this year, we've raised a record amount of, of money and also a record number of sponsors, both corporate and individuals, and it's becoming more and more of a nationwide event in terms of support, which I'm proud to be part of. You know, Robert, what's amazing is when I talk to young people and I tell them about war heroes, and then I actually play them some of the material, or they see it, they're, they're, they're so interested in things like social justice. And they realize for the first time that there are actually men who sacrifice their lives for other men. And this is so beautiful. And so touching, and it moves their hearts. I wanted to play one thing for you. We worked in cooperation with the Normandy Visitors Center, and we've got a few stories from, well, some folks who paid the ultimate price in World War II. And by the way, Robert, there are fewer and fewer as every day passes and time passes. Let's take a listen to Private Harold Gene Seller's story, and we're going to hear also from, well, a high school basketball teammate named Carol Gott, and you're also going to hear from his sister, Wanda Vance, and you're going to hear one of his letters home. Dear Ruth, how is everyone? Fine, I hope. I'm making it swell. We get our wings on Saturday. It's one hell of a feeling when you jump from a plane. When you jump, the prop blast catches you and sends you whirling. Then your chute opens, giving you a big jerk. You come down real peaceful then to earth. You don't land so very hard. We've learned how to hit and take up a tumble to lessen the shock. Well, I better close. I jump tomorrow at 8.30. Bye, and answer soon. Lots of love. Gene. In 1940, I come to Jonesboro to go to school, and he met uh, Gene Sellers. He was easygoing, 
He was just well-liked, and he made everybody smile. I, I was crazy about the guy. He was a nice fellow. And Gene was a good shot, and in uh, free throws, he was, I think, was an excellent. I don't know if anybody could beat him. Every game was a thrill because we was winning. And when you was in high school, if you was a winner and put out, a lot of times you got a chance to go to college. Gene went off to college to the University of Arkansas. When he quit school, he uh, came home and he told us what he was going to do. Gene said he wanted to serve his country. He was in the National Guard and uh, the superintendent here had called mom and dad and told them that he could keep him from going and uh, Gene didn't want that. He wanted to go into paratroopers. Dear Wanda, Ann, and Howard, received your letter and was very glad to hear from you. I went to London, had a swell time. You can find lots of things to do and many pretty sights and places of interest. I finally got all I wanted to eat, but it's not like the food you get at home. I'm telling you and Mom are really going to be hurting when I get back. I'll keep you both busy just cooking. I'm feeling fine and getting along all right. I better close now, so write soon. Love, Gene. And Robert, here's Gene, who volunteers. It's a hot shot basketball player. Volunteers for the most, probably the most dangerous mission you can have: paratrooping into France. And he gets killed. And yet he's picking up everyone's spirits with his letters home uh, to his folks. And and this is what I think we, we have to celebrate. Your reaction is something like that. It's something you know, Robert. Well, look, the 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 the. the, the, the projection through time of, of you know the echo through eternity as they say in the movies of these of these heroes of course they don't look at themselves as heroes he was, he was just serving his country serving his country in a way that's different from you know what progressive individuals might say but just because the values that we hold the founding the founding principles of this republic require defense and anyone who's got the beauty and benefit of this republic intuitively, innately understands that there's no other recourse than to defend it and do your duty for your country. And uh, for me, the parade is just a small way of my helping that uh, that spirit. These men and uh, women in uniform uh, are something to be gathered. I, I went last year for the 70th anniversary. I was uh, proud to be invited to the 70th anniversary to the, to the Battle of Iwo Jima. And when you walk those black sands and you, 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 you climb Mount Suribachi and you carefully avoid still to this day live ordinance, uh, with these men who, you know, in their nineties, uh, you get a little bit of an appreciation, really humbled in awe of what they did and what they continue to do this very day. Whether it's, whether it's, um, the, the lone survivor or Chris Kyle or any of the, any of the, the multitude of, of, of heroes we have. You mentioned uh, this this player. Uh, I'd cite Pat Tillman, who was you know played for the Arizona Cardinals. He was on his way to All Pro status, and he gave it all up to go into battle as a Ranger. Uh, for me, these are the real heroes of our lifetime. Indeed, and and I, indeed, Bob, Robert. And you know, there were thirty five members of the Korean War. 
uh, marching together today with 35 South Korean fashion models. One thing I always find is the, they were cute, too, by the way. <laughs> that sounded like a lot of fun. We missed it. And there were over 500 Gulf War veterans, Robert. That, that had to tickle your heart. That was terrific. I mean, you know, last night we had, a, I've added a little something to the, to, to the weekend's proceedings three years ago. Um, they had a concert, a very impressive concert, uh, the day before at the Kennedy Center. And at night, um, I've turned uh, the evening into a, a mini banquet for these heroes. And many of them come and tell their stories over dinner. So we spent long into the night listening to some of those stories from those very same people. The oldest, I think, of which was a Pearl Harbor survivor uh, in his wheelchair. Uh, and that was just off the charts in terms of, uh, you know, appreciating. You know, he's sitting there quietly, agedly, at 100 years old. He was actually not 90, he was 100. And um, when he told the story, there was one thing he said that, that echoed what you're saying, uh, uh, Lee, which was, the morning of December 7th, when he was with his wife driving to the base, they saw the planes coming overhead, and they thought it was just their planes or our planes. But it turned out that those planes were, were actually the enemy, as we know. And whether it's in Poland, which is another story we heard last night in 1939 or 1941 in uh, Hawaii, uh, there's no soundtrack to when tyranny hits. And he, he, he was vivid how he explained what happened when they hit and the, and the transition from peace to war. It happens in a, in, a, in a blink of an eye. In an instant, Robert. And this is Robert Agostinelli, co-founder of the Roan Group and a board member of the American Veterans Center, which hosts the parade in Washington, D.C. And he's the co-chairman of the Friends of the National Memorial Day Parade. And, Robert, thanks for helping and uh you know, I, I did not know that about your father, and my goodness, that brings the war home, and it's personal. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, enjoy D.C., and look forward to seeing you. Thanks very much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Memorial Day. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's Memorial Day, and now it's time to listen to some of the great stories that have come out of Memorial Day in honor of those who've fallen. And again, the numbers are staggering. The Revolutionary War, 25,000 dead. And then the next big one, the Civil War, the big, big one, 750,000 dead. And this is, by the way, when the country was only about 100 million strong. Not even. And then the next big one, World War I, 116,000 dead. World War II, 405,000. Korean War, 36. Vietnam, 58. Afghanistan and Iraq, almost 7,000. Grand total from the founding of our country, the first war to the last, 
1,354,000 dead. 664,000 through combat and 673 in non-combat roles. And that's why we're talking about this today. And we wanted to start with a clip and a letter that we had recorded. It's a letter from the World War II Museum, the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And Stephen Ambrose came up with the idea of the D-Day Museum, which sprung into what I think is the greatest museum in this country, honoring our fallen heroes. Now, it's just focused on World War II, but... This letter is by, well, it's Fletcher I. Isaacs, the grandson of World War II veteran Leonard Isaacs, who was killed in action on Iwo Jima in 1945. And his letter to his family, we thought it only fitting that the grandson read it. He did. He sent it to us. Let's take a listen to that letter. December 17th, 1944. My dear little boys, I am writing to you today just a week before Christmas Eve in the hope that you will get this little note at Christmas time. All of this coming week will be holidays, and I can just imagine the fun you'll be having, especially when you know that it's just a few days before Santa Claus will be coming. If it were possible, I would like to come down the chimney myself and crawl right into your stocking. Wouldn't that be a surprise? I would enjoy it even more than you. But since your dad is far away and Santa Claus has the only reindeers that will fly through the air, I'm afraid we will have to let Santa Claus use them. After all, he has so many places to go in such a short time. I won't be able to give you a Christmas present personally this year, but I do want you to know that I think of you all the time and feel very proud of the way you've been helping your mother while I'm gone. I know that it is only natural for young, healthy, and strong boys like you are to want to play and have fun all the time but I do want you to think about helping Mummy, because it's hard for her to do everything while I'm gone. I know that you would like to give me a Christmas present, too, so I'll tell you what you can do, and this will be your Christmas present to me. Every day, ask Mummy if there's any errands that you can do for her, and when there are errands, to run. Say, sure, Mummy, and give her a big smile. Then, during the day, go and pick up your room and look around. If there are toys scattered all around, or if you've left some of your clothes on the floor, pick them up. Also, when Mummy is busy trying to clean up the house, don't leave her by herself. But ask Mummy if you can help take care of baby sister. If you do those things for me, well, that will be the finest Christmas present that you could give me. Oh, yes, and Cece, are you eating your meals like a real man now? Well, my boys, I guess you often wonder why people fight and have wars and why lots of daddies have to be away at Christmas time fighting, when it would be so much nicer just to be at home. That's a hard question to answer. But you see, some countries like Japan and Germany have people living in them, just like some people you and I know. Those people want to tell everybody what they can do and what they can't do. No one likes to be told how to live their life. I know that you wouldn't like it if one of the boys in the neighborhood tried to tell you what church you should go to, what school you should go to, and particularly if that boy was always be trying to beat up some smaller or weaker boy. You wouldn't like that, would you? And unfortunately, the only way to make a person like that stop these sorts of things, or a country like Japan or Germany, is to fight them and to beat them. 
and teach them that being a bully, because after all, that's what they are, is not the way to live, and that we won't put up with it. What does all this mean to you? Just simply this, my boys. Dad doesn't want you to ever be a bully. I want you to always fight against anyone who tries to be one. I want you to always help the smaller fellow or the little boy who may not be as strong as you. I want you to always share what you have with the other fellow. And above all, my boys, have courage. Have courage to do the things that you think are right. Never be afraid to fight for what you think is right. To do those things, you need a strong body and a brave heart. Never run away from someone you may be afraid of. If you do, you will always feel ashamed of yourself, and before long, you will find it so easy to run away from the things that you should stand up and fight against. If you and lots of other boys try to do the things that Dad has been talking to you about in this letter, it may be that people will not have to fight wars in the years to come, and in all the daddies in the world will be home for Christmas. And that is where they belong. Perhaps some of the things that I've been talking about you don't quite understand. If you don't, Mummy will explain them to you, as she knows. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God bless you. Daddy. And again, that was written by Leonard Isaacs, and that was his grandson reading it. And he passed and was killed in action. Next up, General Pete Pace. You may remember him from our commencement speech series and his terrific speech to the graduates of the Citadel in 2006. Pace, by the way, served in Vietnam. And he briefly spoke about the soldiers who had fallen under his command in that speech. And in this clip, we are going to listen to him elaborate about those that fell under his command and how it affected him the rest of his life and how, upon his retirement, he felt like he had to return to the Vietnam War Memorial and its wall listing those names, their names, and all of those who died in that war. Let's take a listen. One October of uh, 07 when I retired, I could not let that day end without getting down to the wall. I had a three by five card um, for each of my Marines, um, and I put one of my four stars on, on each. And, to, and it said basically the same on each one, which was to Lance Corporal Guido Farinello, U.S. Marine. These are yours, not mine. Love your platoon leader, Pete Pace. I've had troops who I didn't know on active duty uh, come up to me now and say, you know, what you did at the wall made a difference to those of us in the field. Because we felt like our chairman loved us, cared about us. The general in front of my name was earned by many others. What other nation on the planet sends their sons and daughters around the world for no other reason than to keep and help others become free? And we don't ask anything for it in return. It's an amazing, um, amazing country. Um, And that makes it worth fighting for. And again, that General Peter Pace, and he had retired as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and what does he do? He goes straight to the Vietnam Memorial and basically says, these stars aren't mine, these bars aren't mine, they're yours. Honoring the fallen, 
And that's what we're doing here for two hours. The special Memorial Day broadcast. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. If you have friends who can't listen now, go up there tomorrow. The link will be up. Send it around. A lot more stories coming up from Revolutionary War times to Civil War. You're going to hear letters produced, acted out. Be prepared to be moved. More after these messages. our American stories and we're telling stories of the fallen here and historian Andrew Carroll has dedicated much of his life to collecting and preserving Americans wartime correspondence indeed he collected so many of them 75,000 that he had to have a separate apartment to house them and later donated them to the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History for safekeeping Here he is telling stories and reading some of these letters from his book, War Letters. During World War II, uh, four chaplains on a uh, troop ship, uh, which was torpedoed, found themselves comforting all the men and and, uh, helping and sort of calming uh, the sailors and the soldiers on board. And they came to a horrifying realization. There were not enough life preservers left for everybody. And so these four chaplains took off their life preservers and gave them to the first four young soldiers they found, saving their lives and essentially dooming themselves. And the last image anyone had of these four men was them locked arm in arm, praying as the ship went down, and they were never seen again. And it turns out that the last remaining widow... Um, obviously, the Catholic uh, priest was not married, but the rabbi was, and uh, as were the two Protestant chaplains. And the last remaining widow lives in Washington, D.C., not far from where I live. And she very generously gave me some of her husband's letters, including the last letter he wrote to her, which is, I'll just read very quickly, Darling, just a hurried line as I rush my packing. I'll be on my way in an hour or two. I got back yesterday afternoon just before the warning. Hard as it was for us to say goodbye in New York, at least we could see each other before I left. Don't worry. I'll be coming back much sooner than you think. Remember, I love you very much. Alex. And so many people served this country and died who were not in the Army or the Air Force or in the Navy. They were medics that served in the three branches. They weren't soldiers. They were medics. They were nurses. Red Cross uh, had suffered so many casualties in war, and we want to cover the full totality of these folks who died, these people who died in in the line of fire and serving their country, and in this particular case, it was men of the cloth. And in this particular clip, Andrew Carroll brings us a correspondence between two engaged lovers from New York, Sidney and Estelle, 
who met and started dating when they were 16 and 14, respectively. Sid volunteered to serve in World War II, which she wasn't exactly thrilled about. Here's Andrew starting by reading one of Sid's letters. A soldier always departs. He never arrives. We know our departures, leave-takings, will never end. Sometimes one wonders as he sees the white crosses lined up in well-formed ranks. Sometimes the cemetery brings the question to one's mind, are these the men who have finally arrived? Don't mind this morbid nonsense. Sometimes the loneliness overwhelms me. The noises of the insects, birds, he's out in the Pacific. Uh, Small creatures seem to crowd into my tent, crushing against me. It is terrible to live with memories only. The soldier doesn't think about the future. His present uh, just exists, and the past is all he can think about. This is actually from another part, but he says, uh, We heard in the Daily News report that New York was planning the biggest New Year's celebration it ever had. We were all very angry. Maybe it's because we're on a ship going to another hell as far as we are concerned. Maybe it's because the only way we knew it was New Year's was by the date on the order of the day. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Anyway, to you, my darling, my sincerest, my wholehearted wish that all you desire will be yours in the coming years. We have, unfortunately, very few letters by Estelle. Letters by women are harder to come by because they were sending them overseas and they often didn't survive the jungles or the mountains or wherever they were being sent to. The men, of course, wrote home. It's easier to save them. But this is one letter by Estelle that we have referring to the New Year's Eve celebration. Sweetheart, dearest, the emptiness of everything without you is appalling. The simplest things depend on you, a walk, a conversation, a whim. Everything needs you for completion and enjoyment. Those people who made New York's New Year's Eve the biggest ever, don't be angry with them. They are seeking the distraction of drink and loud noise. There's no fun for anyone anymore, not in horns or nightclubs. Don't condemn them. The crowds are engaged in mass escape. You can't blame them for trying. The spending, the shouting are not signs of happiness. You know that. The greatest happiness is still at a hearth home, and now homes are no more. You can't blame people for trying to escape into something for a while. I love you, Sid. Don't forget, you're my guy. I belong to you. Uh, Sid and Estelle had gotten engaged here in Central Park in uh, May, I'll give you the exact day, 1643. Over the years, when Sid was in the Pacific, uh, there were lags, lags in how long it took for him to write a letter before it got to Estelle. So Estelle really wouldn't worry if she didn't hear from him for some time. And indeed, she got a brief note dated January 19th, 1945, when he was uh, in the Philippines. Very quickly, darling, in combat again, a lot to say, but A, very tired, B, very, very dirty, C, busy, busy as all hell, been moving constantly, excuse brevity, I love you, you make my foxhole warm and soft, sweetheart, you're Sid. Again, that was January 1945. Months went by and no word. Estelle was a student at the time, and uh, one evening she came home. And there was a a letter waiting for her. And there was no return address, and it was just a newspaper article, New York Times. It read, First Lieutenant Cindy Diamond was killed on Luzon. 
one of his letters that he wrote, <clears throat> sorry, right before Christmas, uh, was one that had come in with the lag time a little bit later, and I just want to conclude with that. I guess I have it in the book. Again, keep in mind that Estelle was not crazy with the fact that Sid had joined uh, the military. And he often joked about the fact that he was idealistic and foolish and so forth. And uh, this is just two paragraphs from a letter he wrote uh, not long before he was killed. This is a couple months before. But Stella, for my part in this denial, I beg forgiveness. For my part in being such a fool, will you understand? Sweetheart, would I with you that I could tell you all these things? that I have contributed to your unhappiness again. I humbly request you to try and be patient with me. I would like to fill the air with plans, dreams, hopes, but still, all there is is a choking in the chest. Every once in a while, a guy gets himself overcome by despair. Despondency overwhelms him. It's so long. It's so very long. I love you, darling. Whatever happens, be happy. That's my only request. Get everything we would have liked. Fill your life. <clears throat> well, keep my little niche open so if I ever get home, I'll know there's one place waiting for me, my corner of the world. Let it be a small alcove in your heart. Put a comfortable chair there and always keep a warm fire glowing. Because if I come home in any recognizable form, I'll head directly for that chair. That's where I belong. Enough of this. I love you. You're Sid. And Andrew Carroll can barely make it through that letter. And I wanted to read one more from more letters. A World War I letter from Sergeant David Kerr, a Columbia University student who dropped out of college to fight in World War I and sent a letter to his mother the day before a key attack in France. And while some troops consider it bad luck to write an In Case I Die letter, Kerr wanted his mother, his sister Elizabeth, and his fiancée Mary to keep their spirits up, no matter the outcome. And this is what he wrote. Tomorrow, the first totally American drive commences, and it gives me inexpressible joy and pride to know that I shall be present to do my share. Should I go under, therefore, I want you to know that I went without any terror of death, and that my chief worry is the grief my death will bring to those so dear to me. Since having found myself and Mary, there has been much to make my life sweet and glorious. But death, while distasteful, is in no way terrible. I feel wonderfully strong to do my share well, and for my sake, you must try to drown your sorrow in the pride and satisfaction, the knowledge that I died well, in so clean a cause as is ours, should bring you. Remember how proud I have always been of your superb pluck. Keep Elizabeth's future in mind, and don't permit my death to bow your head. My personal belongings will all be sent to you. Your good taste will tell you which to send along to Mary. May God bless and keep you, dear heart, and be kind to little Elizabeth and those others I love so well. Signed, David. The End. The Americans broke through the German lines but suffered 7,000 casualties in that three-day offensive. And 20-year-old David Kerr was among the fallen. 
This is Lee Habib and Andrew Carroll's terrific work. My goodness, an obsession, and thank goodness he had it. Preserving these letters from the Revolutionary War straight through to the present fights and onward. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Memorial Day. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating Memorial Day, and there's no better music to bump in with than the composition by Randy Wallace. And Randy Wallace also directed We Were Soldiers. He's also a musician, and he always starts his movies off with the music first. He told me that once when we were uh, enjoying a meal together, because the music's just so great in his movies. And I wanted to read you the lyrics because they're so remarkable. We know this song, we've heard it a million times, but this is the first verse that you just heard. To fallen soldiers let us sing, where no rockets fly nor bullets wing, our broken brothers let us bring to the mansions of the Lord. Let's listen to verse 2. No more weeping, no more fight, no friends bleeding through the night, just divine embrace, eternal light, in the mansions of the Lord. And now on to verse 3.
in the lyrics for verse 3, and this is used by Marines who are buried. Where no mothers cry and no children weep, we shall stand and guard, though the angels sleep. Oh, through the ages, let us keep the mansions of the Lord. And on Memorial Day, we celebrate and honor the 1,354,664 Americans who died in combat. The Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Civil War. My goodness, 750,000 killed in that war. The Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War, World War I, two. And between those two wars, 521,000. The Korean War, 36,000. The Vietnam War, 58. Afghanistan, 2,200. Iraq War, 4,488. And again, 1,354,664 Americans died in combat or non-combat roles in wars in this country. And that's why we're spending two hours celebrating Memorial Day here on Our American Stories. And our team worked really hard on this one, but that's what we're supposed to do. And we're supposed to work on a day like today if we're broadcasting, if we have any sense, any common sense. Wanted to share a couple of letters, war letters, from American experience. And these war letters from the, were from the Revolutionary War straight to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Persian Gulf War. And up first, this letter from World War II. November 23, 1943, Fort Benning, Georgia. Dear Louisa, for the nth time, thanks for your package. Please don't send me any more underwear, socks, or candy. The milk of magnesia was absolutely unnecessary. I'm having no more bowel trouble and don't anticipate any. This week, they're teaching us to kill. Now, you probably looked away and shuddered. I don't like the idea either, but we all know it's for our own good. The most strenuous work we do is bayonet drill. We lunge about and are required to growl, grimace, and look at each other with hate. They teach us how to withdraw our bayonets in a certain manner because steel sticks to warm human flesh. They even teach us how to scientifically stomp on a man. This will be invaluable in case anyone ever tries to pick on me. By the way, everything is done in double time. Puff, puff. Confidentially. So long, Mort. And this letter from the Vietnam War. Dear Dad, well, here it is. We've been told that our whole company will be shipping to Vietnam. Our commander told us that there is no sense trying to fool ourselves. We are going for sure. The only thing that makes me mad is how do they expect you to tell your parents? They act as though it is an everyday experience, that we should feel that way. I don't mind going, but there are some guys here who just won't make it. Tell Mom I wish I could have told her myself, but I just didn't know how. Your son, Bob. P.S. Tell her not to worry. It's nothing I can't handle. And some guys didn't make it in that war. 
58,209 didn't make it. And when we come back, we'll play that clip from the Civil War we described and much, much more. Memorial Day, the two hours of our American stories dedicated to our fallen heroes and the men and women who serve this country in all of its battles. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Memorial Day, and we're going to continue to play some clips from the American Experience War Letters, hearing the voice of soldiers in the fight and in every war, and we're celebrating all the wars, and of course, you can only have so much correspondence going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, as opposed to our most present wars, where we actually have emails we're going to be reading in just a a short minute. And so let's go to the Civil War and let's hear the night before battle. December 12th, 1862, 2 o'clock a.m. My dear cousin Vira, it is the night before a battle. The moon is shining through the soft haze with brightness almost prophetic. For the last half hour, I have stood alone in the awful stillness of its glimmering light, gazing upon the strange, sad scene around me, striving to say, Thy will, O God, be done. The acres of little shelter tents are dark and still as death. As I gazed sorrowfully upon them, I thought I could almost hear the slow flap of the grim messenger's wings as one by one he sought and selected his victims for the morning sacrifice. Already the roll of the moving artillery is sounding in my ears. The battle draws near, and I must catch one hour's sleep for tomorrow's labor. Good night, dear cousin. Yours in love, Clara. And we jump to World War II, a week after the attack on Pearl Harbor. December 17th, 1941. We had a little disturbance out here a week ago Sunday, and it was something. I was not certain what was going on until I came off of the hill on my way to the hospital. I saw the smoke from the fires. I expected to see my maker most any moment that morning. I hurried up to the surgery and already the casualties were pouring in. It was hell for a while. These poor devils brought in all shot up and burned. We gave them plenty of morphine and sent them out in the wards to die. Don't quote me, but this is the real dope. We have just three battleships that can fight now. Aircraft lost are certainly over 200. If you think these damn slant eyes didn't do a thorough job, guess again. We wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
and remember Pearl Harbor. Paul. And World War One. This letter, my first hand-to-hand fight. Cote d'Or, France. Dear old Bunky, I know I haven't written you a letter for some time. Too busy with Uncle Sam's affairs just now. It was here, old man, that I got my first hun with a bayonet. We were pressing through a thicket when this big, plug-ugly hun suddenly loomed up in front of me. It was my first hand-to-hand fight. I parried off his blow and had him through his throat. He went down like a log. That was it for Jerry. He never even made a sound. I know you would ask me if I was afraid. Now I'm not going to stick my chest out and exclaim, like hell I was, or anything of the sort. I sure was afraid. And you and any other chap would be too. But what I was afraid of most was that I would be yellow. If a fellow gets a yellow streak and backs down, the other boys won't have anything to do with him. And that was what I was afraid of most, of getting a yellow streak. Your old friend and comrade in mischief, Dick Witch. And what writing? What writing? I wanted to read this one. We were collecting some of our own from our most present wars. Todd W. Weaver wrote a letter to his wife and his baby daughter, and he's a U.S. Army First Lieutenant, to be read in the event of his death. His wife, Emma, found the document on his computer when he was killed in September of 2010 by an IED during his second tour of duty in Afghanistan. The letters are sad and poignant reminders of the sacrifice being borne by our boys, always around the world, our men and women. Let's take a listen. Dear Emma, Well, if you are reading this, I guess I did not make it home, and therefore I was not able to remind you again of how much I love you. I love you so much, baby, and I will always love you. Although I may not be here right now, take comfort in the fact that I am watching over you right now. I am not gone, and I will always be there with you in spirit. I know this time must be hard for you, but I also know how strong you are. Never forget that God knew what was best for us before we were even born. Take comfort in that. This happened for a reason. Although you may not believe it now, you will one day. I want you to know just how important you are to me. I could not ask for a more caring, beautiful, and loving wife. The memories that we have shared over the last few years have been the best of my life. And although it may seem like my life was cut short, I lived a life that most can only dream of. I married the perfect woman. I have a beautiful daughter that amazed me every day. I even had two great dogs, at least most of the time. I couldn't ask for anything more. If you feel sad... Just think back to the memories that we shared. Look at our daughter and how beautiful she is. Be strong for her. Remind her about her daddy and tell her that I loved her more than anything else in the world. Her birth was the best day of my life and she was the best thing that ever happened to me. Her smile, her laughter represent all that is good and beautiful in this world. Tell her that daddy is in heaven now 
and will watch over her and protect her every minute of the day. I love you, Emma, but never be afraid to do what you need to do to be happy. It is so important that you continue to find happiness in this life. Although you may think this is impossible right now, please have faith. Much better times are coming. You and Kylie have a wonderful life ahead of you, and I am so happy to have shared some of it with you. I love you. Your loving husband, Todd. He also left this for his little girl, Kylie. My sweetie, although you may not remember me, I want you to know how very much your daddy loves you. I left for Afghanistan when you were nine months old. Leaving you is the hardest thing a guy could ever do. You are so special to me, sweetie, and were truly a gift from God. The best days of my life were the days you were born and thereafter. Every time I saw you smile, my heart would just melt. You were my sweetie. My life was not complete until you were born. I am so sorry I will not be able to see you grow up. But remember, your daddy is not gone. I am in heaven now, smiling down on you every day. You are so very lucky to have such a wonderful mom to take care of you. Make sure you are good for her and help her out whenever you can. And always remember to say your prayers at night and be thankful for so many of your blessings. Never forget how important and special you are to so many people. We love you so very much. When you get older and start school, do your best. Try to learn as much as you can about the world you live in and always be nice and caring to others and you will discover that the world will be nice to you. But when things aren't going your way, never forget that God knows what is best for you and everything will work out in the end. You have such a bright and beautiful future ahead of you. Have fun, enjoy it, and remember your daddy will always be proud of you and will always love you. You are and will always be my sweetie. With very much love, your daddy. And again, U.S. Army First Lieutenant Todd W. Weaver. His final letter to his bride and his baby. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our special Memorial Day broadcast. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories and more war letters 
This one from Vietnam. Dear Mom, my buddies are all dead. Vietnam, 30 March 71. Dear Mom and all, don't worry. I didn't get another Purple Heart. My buddies are all dead. Out of our infantry company, 21 killed, 29 wounded, and 27 of us are left to talk about the five hours of hell we went through. It's too late to bitch, but the truth will not be told to the U.S. A lot of men are killed, but they tell you only half the number. I can't sleep good anywhere now. I'm trying to forget the horror of Sunday morning. Mom, I'm sick of this. And this next letter, I had a dream last night. I had a dream last night. I was sitting near our kitchen range at home. Mom was baking and she just pulled some beautiful rolls out of the oven. When I woke up, I had a hunk of snow, and I was chewing on it. Our squad leader just came by and told us to shave and wash up. What does he think? We all washed up just a week ago. Your wayward son, Johnny. This next one, A Lonely Job by Dean Allen. Dearest wife, I'm out on ambush with 11 men and a medic. After everything is set up in position, I have nothing to do but think about why I'm here. Why do I have to be the one to tell someone to do something that may get him blown away? Being a good platoon leader is a lonely job. I don't really want to get to know anybody over here because it would be bad enough to lose a man. I'm damn sure I don't want to lose a friend. But as hard as I try not to get involved with my men, I still can't help liking them and getting close to a few. They come up and say, hey, do you want to see a picture of my wife or girl? Like I said, it gets lonely trying to stay separate. Maybe sometime I'll try to tell you how scared I am now. There's nothing I can do about it but wait for another day to start and finish. All my love always, Dean. Four days later, Dean Allen stepped on the landmine and was killed. Next up, a rainbow in the dark. Take a listen. Hello, darling. Last night I saw a very amazing thing. About 8.30 p.m., we were just sitting around talking, when one of the boys looked to the north and saw, of all things, a rainbow. It was at least an hour after sundown, so how a rainbow could form without sunlight, I don't know, but there it was. I like to sit up these warm, bright nights and watch the white clouds and dark shadows move in the night. That's when I miss you the most, darling. At night, when everything is so still and quiet, 
Sometimes I pretend we're just sitting there, with our arms about each other, our hearts beating as one. Best I don't dwell on the subject, because I miss you so much right now, it seems as though my heart is going to burst. I love you, Jack. And by the time his love Audrey had received this letter, Jack Emery had been killed in Burma. And now let's play All Confusion, Smoke, and Cold. December 14th, 1777. People who live at home in luxury and ease, quietly possessing their habitation, enjoying their families in peace, have but a very faint idea of the continual anxiety the man endures who is in a camp. What sweet felicities have I left at home? A charming wife, pretty children, good beds, good food, good cookery, all agreeable, all harmonious. Here, all confusion, smoke and cold, hunger and filthiness, a pox on my bad luck. Albergence Waldo, 1st Connecticut Infantry Regiment. And from the Revolutionary War, we proceed to this letter from the Civil War. February 3rd, 1863. Dear Sister, The bullet came obliquely from the left and passed several feet in front of me. It seemed that I could almost hear it singing from the time it left its bed in the rebel's gun. Suddenly I heard the same ball go crash, and I knew by the sound that it had burst a human skull. Then I saw Sergeant Chauncey Goldsmith quivering and dying. We could not refrain from casting a glance at the man who lay there trembling in every limb and the blood spurting from his nostrils. In the heat of action, such scenes do not much affect one, but at a time like this, it is awful indeed. I have come to the conclusion that destiny is a deity that shields and protects or permits to be stricken down as his wisdom chooses. Your brother, D.F. Embry. In this next story from World War I. December 14th, 1918. My darling mother, dad, and all. The Argonne. Forty days with the booming of the guns, the nerve-wracking whine of the projectiles, and the crash of the bombs ever in my ears. Breathing and eating the damnable gases that have shocked the civilized world. Forty days of struggling, toiling, and praying with very little food and sleep. It was forty days of unremitting hell. In fact, comparison is hardly fair to hell. It rained continually from the time we got there until the time we left. The rain was finely woven and clammy as a funeral garment. It had a way of soaking through the skin on into the body of a man until his very heart seemed to be pumping the rainwater along his veins instead of blood. It would wet all the world. 
God knows where the son has gone. Your devoted son and brother, Hugh. 116,516 killed in World War I. This last one, World War II. Somewhere in Italy, 1-1844. Dearest family, we now have a mix of wounded and battle-fatigued soldiers. Each category tugs at your heart. The wounded were happy to be missing only one arm or leg. I have a terrible earache, but as usual, I have to work. The patients need me. A few days ago, I was giving medications before lights out. As I finished with this one very young soldier and was tucking his blankets around him, he said, My mother always kissed me goodnight when she tucked me in bed. So I kissed him on the forehead. He blushed, covered his head with the blanket, and everyone else called, Mommy, Mommy. Love, June. This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, we're going to spend the entire segment on the story of Corporal Corrado, Babe, Charlo. And it's a perfect way to end our celebration of Memorial Day. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and as promised, the story of Corporal Corrado Babe Charlo. And you saw this in The War by Ken Burns on PBS. Early in 1943, an envelope from the War Department arrived in Waterbury, Connecticut, the home of the Charlo family. There were three boys in that family. Two were exempt from the draft. The middle son, Corrado, known as Babe, was 19 and single, a perfect candidate for the Army. He was drafted. Babe's sister recounts how it affected the family, especially their mother, whose husband had passed away just a few years earlier. Of course, it was a shock to all of us, and my mother cried forever. Forever. But that's the way the war was. So it was a tough time. And not only that, but my father had passed away in uh, 1937. My mother was very, very heartbroken at that time already. My mother would take the bus and go up the cemetery all by herself. She couldn't speak a word of English. And all she could tell the man on the bus was cemetery. And then to know that my brother was going off to war, she was scared. She didn't want to go through this all over again, so it was hard times, very hard times. Babe's sister tells us about how Mrs. Charlo, Babe's mother, would sit and wait for a letter to arrive from her son every day on the front porch. Just hearing from him was the only thing that made her happy. She'd wait every single morning on the porch for the mailman to come to bring her a letter and he would go by sometimes and he would say Mrs. Charlo not today so the following day she 
wait again for that letter. And finally, she would get a letter. She'd be so happy. She'd run upstairs and she'd let us read the letter because my mother couldn't read English. And uh, we would read the letter to her. And she'd be happy just knowing that she heard from him. This is one of the many letters that Babe sent his mother from the front lines with the Army's 3rd Infantry. Babe's brother recounts the unusually positive and uplifting nature of these letters the family would receive and how he didn't realize until he got older that his brother was protecting the family from hard truths. Mom, how are you getting along? Fine, I hope, and keeping happy always. I know I haven't written to you for a long time, and I hope you understand the Army has been keeping me pretty busy. I'm doing good and always happy because I know you're okay. Love, babe. It was always on the upside. I could only write a few lines right now because I'm, I'm going to chow and I don't have time. This is, this is in the heat of the battle and he's going to chow line. I mean, there's no such thing as a chow line when you're in. The, but you don't realize this at the time, until years later you get a little smart and you go, geez, you know. Uh, how could he be going to a chow line when you're in the middle of a battle or you're on a foxhole or someplace? But he always had that upbeat outlook about it. March 27, 1944. I just got through with chow. We're having beautiful weather here, and I hope it's the same way there. So you could take the babies out every afternoon. Babe's mother had a hard time grasping the size and scope of the war. The front line's now pushing towards Rome. Babe's brother remembers a letter that his mom sent to Babe, telling him to meet up with relatives while he was there. My mother had uh, my aunt write a letter in Italian that she had sent to Babe. When you get to Rome, when you get to Italy, we have relatives over there. When you get there, show them these letters and they'll treat you well and everything else, you know. And at the time, you think, well, yeah, he's going to go to Italy, he's going to go to Rome, and he's going to see his relatives. you imagine that? It's so unreal. On June 4, 1944, the army was finally marching into Rome. It was Babe Charlo's 21st birthday. Back in Waterbury, his sister Olga sat down to write him this tear-filled letter. Dearest Babe, it is now about 3.15 in the afternoon. And it's a beautiful day. We are all in the best of health and always hope to hear the same from you. We just had news a little while ago, and our American forces are in Rome. Well, babe, today is your birthday, and we do wish you a happy one. May all your wishes and dreams come true. Let's hope that you'll be home for your next birthday. I'm sure you will be. It won't be long now. We'll have the biggest party you've ever seen. We're all so proud of you, especially Mom. There's not a minute that goes by that she doesn't think of you. We all miss you and pray so hard for this war to end so you can't come home. And just days after Olga had written that letter, that we just listened to. The Charlo family received that dreaded telegram every family dreaded receiving. My mom's mom 
didn't get a telegram. She got it delivered in person. The, the car pulled up and it hit six families on one small block in West New York. And my mom says to this day, she remembered until the day she died, remembered not just her mom screaming and crying, but five others through the block and five funerals and her sons and brothers. Babe sister Olga remembers coming home that night, not knowing what had happened. When she approached the house, she noticed all the lights were on and she knew something was wrong. Babe's mother refused to believe that Babe was gone and there would never be any music in that house ever again. Well, I was out that night with the girls. We had a sewing club. I came home and after I got off the bus, I see all these lights lit, which is very unusual that my mother would have all these lights lit. And the closer I got to my house, lights were all over the place, and I can hear people talking. And as I, as I went up the front stairs, I can hear my mother screaming, crying. My aunts, uncles, everybody was there. And I didn't know what had happened. So my aunt called me aside and told me what had happened. Well, it was a, a terrible night. My mother, of course, was... Well, how can I explain it? She was a disaster. We would be getting the newspaper, and um, my mother would look at pictures, and she'd say to me, There's Babe. That's Babe. And I'd say, Gee, no, Mom. No, you have to write. You have to write. I don't know how many newspaper offices I would write to, magazine places I would write to, questioning the name of that boy that was in that picture because my mother always thought it was babe, but it never came to me. It was so bad in our house that nobody ever knows. I used to play the piano ever since I was a young girl. When my father passed away, when my brother babe died, my mother had no music in the house. I never played the piano again. And I don't know what to say. It's not much to say. Again, 1.354,664 died in battles in the American Revolutionary War, straight through to the Iraq War. And we've covered as many letters, correspondence as we can during the last two hours. And when we close out here, we'll have to play the only thing you can play on Memorial Day, to end things. And that's Taps. And a bit about the song. It was originally played by a 22-year-old Union Army bugler during the Civil War in July 1862. Just 24 notes that were used to signal lights out at the end of the day. But it also started to be used at military funerals that same day. And it has since become part of our nation's soul and the traditional Memorial Day song. And always it is played for the fallen. This is Our American Stories, our special Memorial Day salute. 